Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Gabe Orthos. Uh, I am going to be uh, leading a conversation today uh, at Disrupt Us at Work, an integrated care podcast. I am super excited to introduce you uh, to my panelists. Uh, this is, um, I'm, I'm excited myself because this is, whenever I think about disruptors and healthcare leadership, I think of Don McDaniel. Uh, and he is here with us today, as well as Kara English, uh, the CEO at Cummings Graduate Institute. Uh, thank you, folks, for, for being here today. Great to be with you, Gabe, as always. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Excited. So the episode today is the educational determinants of healthcare leadership. All right. And that's just kind of a, a buzzwords uh, to start talking about. Uh, the experience and the management consulting that somebody like Don McDaniel that has been in this industry for so long has his own consulting company, CEO of Canton and Company, and really being the, uh, what he calls himself, the contrarian. I've, I've heard him say that a couple of times, uh, <laughs> keynoter, builder, economist, disrupting the status quo in capital letters in his LinkedIn profile. I don't know if you've ever been out there and just kind of check out his, his profile. Uh, it's really interesting because he does come from that uh, disruptor uh, kind of idea. And so we talk about healthcare leadership. We talk about why there's such a gap in today's world when it comes to those future leaders, and especially with the massive resignation going on right now with COVID, uh, our healthcare uh, organizations are shell-shocked. And um, some leaders are even retiring. And so um, without further ado, I do wanna give the panel, uh, we're gonna go ladies first, if you don't mind, Kara, give us a quick introduction, Coming Strategy Institute, please introduce yourself. Sure, you got it. Uh so Cummings Graduate Institute, you know, talking about being uh, disruptive was founded by Dr. Nicholas Cummings, who was literally called psychology's provocateur, um, among other things, some nice and some not so nice. <laughs> but over the years, he really spoke to the need for lots of change and, and really thinking critically about how we were educating and training healthcare professionals, especially those in, in mental health and behavioral health, as well as physicians, nurses, and, you know, really anybody who's interacting with patients. Um, but he also talked about payment reform and, and the real need to move away from the, the system of, of bean counting when it came to counting quality um, and really moving in the direction of counting what patients consider to be a quality experience. And so CGI was really founded to critically look at research, um, practice, learn, fail, learn, succeed uh, in the direction of healthcare innovation that improved quality for, for patients and for providers. And so that's what we stand for. The, the uh, community of Cummings Graduate Institute students and faculty, uh, guest lecturers, subject matter experts really comes together to try to infuse our community with the you know, leading edge of, of research and practice and to really amplify the work that our students are doing because they are really getting out there and applying the literature that they're reading instead of waiting what yeah. Dr. Nick Cummings talked about generations to see any kind of an implementation of, of what the medical literature uh, said. So that's really what CGI is all about. 
That's awesome. Um, I'm going to tell you a secret. I've always wanted to be Don when I grew up. So I am oh not going to try to introduce him. Don McDaniel, please introduce yourself. That, that's that's scary, uh, Gabe. <laughs> and we might need a mental health consult for Gabe on that front, Kara. But um, I'm here for you both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm really I'm really happy to be here, Don McDaniel, with Canton and Company. We're a healthcare focused uh, strategy, technology, growth, and operations firm. And and have folks all over the country very focused on uh, trying to improve, uh, you know, the system and the industry. And I, I've, uh, I'm of so many minds on this issue about where we are because, you know, where we are in healthcare. I think Care hit this on the head, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why we are where we are, but we're not really in a great place. You know, if you think about ultimately the consumer, and I always say to people, think about a great, what's a great experience you have? What's a great company that you like? What's a great company where you have a repeatable experience? You know, who's somebody you count on? And try to think about that kind of experience. Do you, have you had those in healthcare? And people are really challenged oftentimes to, to sort of put those things together. So we, we really, we believe in the power of consumers, of patients. We want to put, you know, we, we, we're not going to necessarily affect what consumers do every day, but we feel like, hey, to build a better system, to be part of winning in the next stage of this health economy that we've got to put, uh, put patients and consumers back in the center and, and, you know, challenge the variation. There's gross variation in healthcare and drive more transparency and all of these trite things, but we can talk about more of these examples. Um, and a lot of it, to your point, Gabe, has been exacerbated by COVID. I mean, both, uh, you know, what consulting types call headwinds and tailwinds, you know, lots of Lots of things accelerated, lots of things where we've seen, you know, ugly, uh, you know, uh, ugliness, uh, you know, even more, right, than we had in the past. So I'm just really thankful for you all. And I love the idea of leadership. I, I would say also, I think leadership development has been dramatically underserved in healthcare and, and would love to talk more about that. So thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely, Don. Thank you so much. I, I do want to get us started a little bit different than our other podcast uh, that we've had, because I want to give you kind of that, what I call it schizophrenic reality of where we are today. Just reading the headlines uh, on Becker's um, mm -hmm. um, review today, I mean, we are all over the place. So I want to go through five or six different kind of titles that that kind of caught my attention today when I was reading you know, when I do my, my daily readings, mm -hmm. number one, Novin Health launches Innovation Lab, five things to know. Okay, good. No, Novin has a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, seven hospitals cutting inpatient care. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them here in, in Atlanta as well, well start. Uh, FBI sends the alarm on black cat ransomware gang. Mm -hmm. Care starts long before patients see a provider. UC Health delivers an exceptional experience by providing easy to use wayfinding. That's a that's a new word for me. I didn't know that the mm. whole I knew critical path. I did not know wayfinding. Mm -hmm. um, Amazon invests in injury reducing startup. RCM company suffers third largest health data breach of 2022. Cleveland Clinic avoids ED transports for 70% of patients. HCA's profit dips to 1.2 billion as labor costs rise, and Walmart Wellness Day to offer health screening at affordable immunizations. Mm -hmm. 
the number 10 was the key, uh, five key stats on clinicians, EHR burnout. And we can go mm -hmm. another direction on that one, but 500 I mean, key stats, right? <laughs> 500 yeah. keys. Yeah. Yeah, to, yeah. Uh, death by a thousand keys. Uh, the, right. the ECW thing. Yeah, exactly. So, um, why don't we get started with that, you know, that, that reading the tabloids, it seems like, uh, sometimes, um, but when we talk about that, right, so the, the consumerability that you're talking about is changing how this healthcare ser services are being delivered. Um, in your point of view, Don, who is that leader of today's healthcare organization? What are they dealing with? How has the pandemic changed the DNA and the fabric of a traditional hospital level, sea level? Yeah, I know it's, uh, you asked a, a number of good questions. I'm still trying to process your TED or whatever it was, your headlines, because I think that it's pretty interesting. They are uh, both provocative and also somewhat like endemic. Like I'm thinking about these headlines really point out a couple of things. So if you'll indulge me, I'll just make a couple of comments about those. One, sure. I love reading about innovation in healthcare. It's sort of like, you know, is there a bigger oxymoron? So yet some other hospital system has started an innovation lab. What does that really mean? This is like the lemmings walking off the, the, uh, the ledge. We have to be in the innovation business or the venture business or whatever. So, you know, find me a hospital health system based innovation initiative that has really added value in an applied way. And I'll, uh, you know, I'll have some property to sell you or whatever. So that's pretty interesting to me. The, the thing I tell you of all of those comments, the one that was really the most intriguing and not because I, I love the company per se, but the comment about the, the headline about injury reducing startups. So there's an article that was just published. I haven't even read the whole thing, but there was something published in Harvard Business Review on the 20th, four actions to reduce medical errors in U.S. hospitals. Now, when you ask the rank and file person, do you have any sense of how severe the problem of iatrogenic or unforced errors uh, is in U.S. hospitals, and most people don't, right? Yeah. And and I always say to people, look, if if our airlines suffered even remotely close to the same error rate, literally no one would ever get on an airline, okay? And so there's obviously this massive disconnect, and and you, you start to scratch your head and wonder why. And I look at this article a little bit. They've got these these you know different headlines and. And one, the headline is establish a national safety organization, make patient and staff safety a top priority. It, I mean, is this real? Like, what are we talking about here? What, what about, hey, why don't we hit this head on? So when I hear Amazon, and I don't have any great particular love for Amazon, but generally speaking, when I think about people like Amazon and, and, and Walmart, and I think about a bunch of the digital tech uh, companies, those are the disruptors, you know, so I, I, that headline to me grabs me and says, wait a second, I start to think if Amazon is willing to back something in patient safety or injury reduction, it might be real, it might be valuable. But I don't have a lot of faith that that kind of innovation and opportunity is going to happen from within the industry. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And it ties back, Gabe, to your leadership comments. Number one, I always tell people the true innovation index is like is the hospital CEO within three years of retirement, because if the number is three or less, there ain't going to be no innovation, excuse my 
French, you know, there's just sort of sailing as usual. And when we look at the leadership in a lot of these organizations, it's it's sort of very come see, come solve very pedestrian. And I and that has me sort of thinking there was an article a while ago, 15 years ago, that said, okay, you know, coming to, to healthcare, you're hiring your CFO from Boeing. And I started to think, why don't we have more leaders in healthcare businesses that come from industry? We're starting to see that right now, right? Putting the the, the best foot forward, hiring the best folks. Um, and, and so, uh, so I think that these, these, uh, uh, these leadership activities are really important. I think diversifying your team is, is incredibly important. I think that, uh, but, but, you know, what's the true North and, and in a, in a healthcare delivery organization, the true North should be zero defects. And I'm, I'm reminded of, I think it was a couple of years ago, but Volvo had their mission statement was, or no, I'm sorry, their vision statement was at some point, no one dies in a Volvo. And, that was interesting to me. And I'm like, okay, what's that really mean? And they didn't disclaim that. They didn't say no one dies in a Volvo if they're not impaired or no one dies in a Volvo if the other driver is impaired or, you know, there weren't all, this was just, no, no, no. Our big, hairy, audacious goal is no one dies in a Volvo. And we don't have that in healthcare. And I don't think the answer is, another, you know, uh, government initiative or, you know, the hospitals getting together because we've, we've been there, done that. And, you know, part of my problem in the disconnect is a lot of what happens in the 80% of our economic lives that we're pretty happy with, that we have really high quality standard of living, even with eight plus percent inflation right now, uh, you know, all of the things we take for granted in, in that part of our economic life all seem like their challenges in healthcare until consumers really are ready to, to shake the tree and demand more, then we're not going to get more. And then I'll, I'll just say in closing, and I liked what Kara said, you know, this notion of applied, you know, having people that are passionate, that want to make change on the ground, you know, that want to, you know, that conversion rate of, you know, book knowledge to real knowledge, right? Proving things out. That is so important. Okay. That, that, you know, this notion of becoming more applied and more forward thinking is really important. And I think a lot of people are now in this mindset of, Hey, my mom or dad's affected or my kids, but you know, uh, how do I deal with, how do I deal with these things? And, uh, it's, it's coming, uh, you know, front and center. So anyway, I thought the, I thought your lead in was perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Don, I, I want to hop in and say, you know, yes, kudos, everything you said. And also just that I do think consumers are at a point now where they are beginning to avoid healthcare more and more because they are not getting, and, and this is, you know, definitely coming from personal experience as well as the experience of everyone in my family who always calls me when they have a bad experience yep, and asks yep. me, well, are doctors supposed to do this, that, or the other, or, or aren't they supposed to do X, Y, or Z? And, right. you know, there's just so much disillusion. And then, you know, talking my, in many conversations, I just did a, a, a presentation a couple of weeks ago to the Valley Perinatal and Neonatal Conference. So a group of about 180 IC, NICU, ICU and, and emergency department um, providers who mm-hmm. are so burned out and, 
you know, in the recent wake of, of the news of the um, Redonda Vought case where, you know, the nurse was held legally responsible for killing a patient mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. due to a medical error, people, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like the burnout from COVID was enough to chase everybody out of the healthcare industry. Now we have, and by the way, you're going to be legally responsible and we're going to put you in jail if you make a mistake now. Um, right. So, you know, we, we just have this environment now where you have to ask yourself, why would anybody want to get into it? And I think that's our responsibility, you know, as educators and, and, you know, individuals who are mentoring and training individuals is to say, okay, how do we sort this out? Because we have to have healthcare yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, the government's yeah. not going to do it for us. So, you know, to your point, getting industry and, and government together may, may not have solved the problem before, but I think, you know, everybody is, is kind of in a new place of how can we hold everybody accountable and also have participation from every level of, you know, cause we do need government and industry participation, but we also sure. need patient participation Absolutely. and community participation. Yeah. So how do we do that systemically is really the question for me because it doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's a, it's a really good point. A number of good points. I mean, we, if you think about our system, it's a pluralistic system. Government is about 50% of all purchases in healthcare. Government is the lead regulator in the U.S. anyway, we're talking about, right? Government is a major provider of healthcare, if not the major provider. Mm-hmm. Government is a major payer through Medicare and Medicaid and, and VA. So government obviously plays a significant role. We still have, uh, you know, 60% of, uh, of, uh, you know, insureds are getting their insurance through their employer insurance, which is something that's reasonably uniquely American, you know, all of these other things. So, so you're right, everybody has to work together. And, uh, and it almost feels though, you know, like coming back to what you said that sometimes the consumer, the patient is the last to know or the last to be consulted, you know, and, and so what I think has happened with COVID and you, you, you identified a couple of things specifically that I think are really, um, you know, we need to drill in on. One is people are avoiding healthcare. Well, some at a practical level, people don't want to go to a hospital, you know, hey, I read the hospitals, the germ factory. Why in the heck would I expose myself? And now we have a front page story called COVID for multiple years that validates that concern, right? So that's an issue. I think we have a lot of changing patterns. I had somebody tell me uh, the, I think the stat is like in the last year, 50% of all U.S. adults did not avail themselves of a primary care visit, either physical or virtual. Mm-hmm. You start to think about that. That's pretty wild. That that could mean that you know this whole mental model that I grew up with of patient attached to a primary care clinician. Maybe that model is not what the new generations want. You know, maybe they want digital interface or or multi. You know, omni-channel, multi. Uh, uh, you know, uh, multimedia, whatever the case may be. So, I think a lot of the assumptions that we made. You know, we 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 have to question those. And th- and then you talked about. You know, you talked about the risk, the risk of providers, they're overworked. You know, I think that healthcare is now the number one driver of bankruptcy. So we've got, you know, in every place, in every town in America, the the community hospitals sending uh, patients to collections and bankrupting them because they can't pay a bill. This is really, Mm -hmm. this is, this is really bad. I, what I've always, I've heard a lot of apologists talk about, you know, but it's healthcare, it's different. We're dealing with humans. And, and I get all of that, except that I I don't think that we're thinking 
thinking about this through the prism of a of you know of a process an end to end process and how we might drive improvement um, on the leadership side and you know I I I have taught in a number of MBA programs I think that leadership training is really important when I started teaching at Hopkins one of the first things that we did was the and I thought this was very self aware a lot of you know world world leading clinicians that were running Hopkins departments said, Hey, I'm running a $20 million budget and I can't even spell business. And they wanted to have some training. And, you know, it, I thought it was very refreshing because, you know, they, they grew up in an environment where, you know, uh, knowledge dissemination is so powerful and important, but they're running businesses and, and they didn't even really have, you know, sort of foundational understanding. So right. it, it's going to be really important that we, um, uh, you, you know, that we change that. The last thing I, something else she said that I, and I, and even coming back to behavioral health, you think about our system. So we essentially bifurcated behavioral health from somatic health, behavioral and primary care and other care, because, you know, states decided that was the right model for managed care or others decided they should be separated. So in whose right mind would we assume that BH behavioral health should be separated from physical health, right? And so now all of a sudden, it's really like, again, it's the lemming thing, but like everybody's now, oh, integrated primary care, integrated BH. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, that's the right way. So anyway, it's a lot of these have, are we learning the lessons? Okay. Are we asking the hard questions and are we preparing leaders for, for, you know, for the next generation? I think those are, those are key questions. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm sorry to bring this up, but I have to, I think I'm, I'm one of many, many individuals right now who's gone from, you know, watching dramas because we're all still kind of in this routine of staying home most of the time now to watching the, the great American con individuals, right? There are all these documentaries <laughs> and I can't help but ask, or whatever. Right, yeah, I, right. I can't help, but ask myself, isn't healthcare really just the biggest American con in, in our century, because if you look at it from a perspective of what are people being told and what are they voting on because they're being told, you mentioned that 60% of Americans are, you know, getting healthcare through the government or, or that, you know, government is essentially paying for 50 to 60%. We know that in most states, Medicaid is paying for between 50 and 60% of all births. It's usually tipped in the direction of that 60% of all births. And then you have Medicare. So if we look at the percentage of care that government is actually covering for United States of America citizens and residents, it's really in the direction of the majority of care. And yet people are voting against government, you know, controlled or government, um, paid, you know, socialist healthcare, um, without knowing that actually that's how some of the best care in the United States is being delivered right now. Um, and so I have to look at third party, you know, insurers, commercial insurers who are making the biggest profits because of exactly what you said, Americans aren't going to get any healthcare. So of course they're, you know, producing these massive profits in the wake of COVID <laughs> yeah, and well. we're saying, all right, so who is healthcare set up to benefit? Who, who wins in this system? It's obvious. So how do we fix this? Well, you know what? You might find I have a little bit of a difference of opinion, but I mean, when you say it's obvious, meaning your your conclusion is payers are are winning. You know, I I have never I'm not I don't like payer I, I don't love payers any more than any anybody else or you know whatever health plans I. I 
I've always had a longer term view about this. Number one, we're in the system we're in and it's taken a long time to get here. But, um, you know, a lot of this has really been driven by, you know, the the advent of government involvement in the 60s predominantly has really changed things. And when you take consumers out of economic decision making, you tend to have a problem. Now, I know, you know, where the rest of the world is predominantly single payer, essentially planned health care. And, you know, we're not here to have a debate about that. But when you look at payers, I mean, payers play a certain role and function in our system. Mm-hmm. If you look at the publicly traded payers uh, prior to pandemic, uh, you know, those payers were generating. I think if you looked at the publicly traded payers, it wasn't massive, you know, between four and 7%, uh, you know, return. So it wasn't like crazy, crazy. And I I could argue, look, I know, I I personally know, you know, probably a hundred community hospital CEOs that are making seven figures. And I sort of look at the balance card on, Hey, what that hospital is delivering versus what those folks are paid. So I, I I do think consumers are getting, without question, consumers and to a certain extent, employers are getting, you know, short uh, shrift on this. That doesn't mean the whole system is bad. And it is very much a, you know, it is that proverbial tale of two cities, right? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times, you know, you, and you can always find data to support these things. Um, But, but I, I will say, you know, there's a lot, there's, it's, it's a deeper discussion. If you think of about hospitals, right? And we think about it. In fact, you know, there's now, I I think it's pretty commonly uh, agreed that, you know, uh, on any given day, about 30% of what has been historically done in a hospital setting can now be done at home or in the community, right? And so, and, you know, people want care in the home and community, and it's probably lower cost. So that makes a ton of sense from a value perspective. But yet, Hospitals have, uh, you know, monopolies or oligopolies on some of these things, or they block or they purport to support CON under the context of quality. So there's a, there are a lot of self-interested players in the healthcare business. If you think about the lobbies, you know, five of of the most powerful trade and advocacy lobby groups in the history of the world are core healthcare. Mm-hmm. trade and lobby groups. The primary reason for those groups' existence is to, you know, drive their memberships benefit mm-hmm. and, and candidly, even individuals to raise comp. You know, that's what that's what those groups re- really get paid to do. Yeah. I, I, I am trying, what, what I'm trying to think through, and, and I think what retailers, as an example, if you think about a completely non-traditional, not, you know, participant who is entering and there's no question why people want to enter. You know, they look at the mess that we're in. They look at the spending. They look at the year over year and they look at the backward, you know, way that things go about in healthcare. And they say, oh, why not us? We should be able to change this. You know, mm-hmm. you could fill in the blanks, any number. I mean, even if you think back to the joint venture with, you know, uh, what was it? Haven, Berkshire and Amazon and, and, and whatever. It's obvious why they think that they can enter and disrupt. Right. But, but, but you know, at the end of the day, there is this, there there are core changes, you know, there are younger generations, there's uh, digitization is very powerful. And it is aligning the playing field, we're learning how to communicate differently with folks, people are used to now having, uh, you know, a health plan, an HMO and a, a PPO, their entire life, it used to be, you know, 15 years ago, when 
MA was really stoking up, a lot of people said, oh, seniors won't join an MA plan because they've never had, they've never been in a managed care plan. Well, guess what? That's, you know, all bets are off now. Or or Medicaid recipients don't have smartphones or, you know, th- those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I, I am a big advocate of trying to drive more transparency and allow people to make as many decisions as they can. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and then I'll, I'll just say, it's interesting. If you think about MA right now, uh, and again, it's not an advertisement for MA. I think Medicare Advantage is the overwhelming choice of of uh, seniors, like they're choosing with their pocketbook to, to go to MA away from traditional Medicare, or in particular, vulnerable populations, uh, African-Americans and Hispanic Americans overwhelmingly are choosing MA. And when you peel that onion a little bit, you say, well, what's different about an MA plan than, than Medicare? Well, one of the things that people are cognizant of is you know, everybody is scared to death of going into the, the proverbial what's called spend down. Like, you know, at the end of life, all of my resources get used. I eventually end up in in some, you know, skilled nursing facility or whatever. And then I've tried my whole life to leave something for my kids or whomever. And, and I can't. And I think people are frustrated with that kind of thing. And they're saying, OK, well, a vote for MA means I'm going to be in a plan with, with, you know, quote unquote, more benefits. But the biggest thing is a more integrated approach to, you know, to how we provide care. So I don't know if it's MA for everybody or if MA is the future. And that's just an example of, of one of, you know, the, the, the many things that are happening. Um, you guys talked about workforce when we opened, you know, one of the things that was really happening in the, you know, sort of change in 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 workforce was this whole gig economy move that was afoot well before COVID even started you know the in fact i can recall a number of reports that said you know by the mid-20s or by 2030 you know x percentage of americans would no longer be employed they would be contracted you know or whatever and then i think that got you know that got uh, you know tailwinded by, by by COVID also. So how are we dealing with that? The fact that young people don't want to be necessarily, you know, they don't want to be employed, right? So they don't want to have a traditional PCP. They right. don't want to be employed by a traditional I- employer. They want to access their care the way that they want to. You know, these are good. These they're not good or bad. These are this is just what's happening. But I think what's healthy is, hey, to have an industry that's responsive to how these things are changing. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, and you know, just to go back to the workforce comment, the the one of the so I started my doctorate of behavioral health with Dr. Nick Cummings, you know, as the lead in 2011 and he was talking about the workforce shortages that were coming and you know the mass resignation or or retirement of uh, those in the industry from the baby boomer generation and, you know, the need to then fill the workforce gaps with more and more um, workers to meet the needs of an aging population of baby boomers, as well as mm-hmm. the changing expectations of mm-hmm. younger people in the healthcare system. And, and, you know, to your point, to go back to 2011, there was this huge push to primary care being not the gatekeeper, but the holder of all the records, right? The Mm -hmm. person who sort of was the spoke at at the center of the wheel and, you know, really being that knowledgeable advisor and director of care. But we know now that primary care providers are 
res resigning. You know, they are some of the top mm -hmm. resigners from you know, the pay isn't there. The overwhelm issue that mm -hmm. I, I kind of talked about before. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we look at our community and our community systems just aren't, we don't have that social support for community prescribing like we do for medical specialists. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of issues there with the system that I think, you know, younger people and, you know, all people like we, like we talked about, there's, there's a lot of good reasons for avoidance, but the system itself is so slow on the uptake to pivot. Yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah. so to go back to the pandemic, I, I kind of feel like all the resources were devoted to this. How do we resolve all the challenges due to the pandemic? Because it's the biggest challenge that we're facing right now. Mm -hmm. But again, looking, you know, like you mentioned, the long-term game. Okay, what does this look like though? You know, and how yeah. what are the steps to us getting there to really looking at the systemic barriers and, and addressing them? And, I, and who needs to be at the table? Everybody. I, yeah, th this is a really, really good, good point number one there is i would argue and again i'm not making any friends there is massive protectionism in the current system there is a massive notion of hey we we don't want our cheese moved and again getting back to the economics whether it's hospitals or pharma or payers or whatever now some of that is natural you know to, i i love business i'm a capitalist but i'm not a fan of crony capitalism like i want things to be level i want them to be competitive and and i want people to have choices right there's a lot of regulatory blocking in healthcare and in some cases we don't even realize it you used a couple of examples one is you know even if there's no real evidence basis uh, a powerful enough lobby could block prescribing right or if we think about it, i've often said to people that you know cms was a lot more than just a payer it's really the regulator the payment system if you think about fee for service has been a regulator because you know if you're a if, if for a long time if you were a nurse supporting a physician or a pa you have to bill incident too there's literally this whole industry around how you code to collect money to have the PA bill, but we don't want the PA to bill independently because the PA threatens the nurse practitioners or the PA threatens the primary care you know, physicians. Or why do we think we have all of these subspecialties, right? Because it, and I know this is sounding terribly jaundiced, but I think there's a lot of truth to this. Like, you well, know, I if I have some I, new- Don, I don't, I don't think consumers know this. And so when I have these conversations with yeah. my family about, did you know that when you see a nurse practitioner or a PA, they only get 80% of what the physician could see, but the physician doesn't want to see anybody because the PA can see a lot more people and it's a moneymaker yeah. for them. And so I don't, I don't, I think to go back to your point of transparency, I think it's all about the transparency because when you know that, you know, your doctor is getting more money to see you, but your doctor isn't seeing as many people. And so you're getting the nurse practitioner, the PA or the MA sometimes just an MA, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. it, it kind of gets to be a point where the consumer can say to your point, hold on a second. Th yeah. The consumer, what I want the consumer. And it's, it's not a straightforward you know, analysis, right? Because it's mm -hmm. there, there's all, you know, we've been using proxies for quality in healthcare for a long time because we've done such a poor job of actually reporting on outcomes. What does a quality outcome, you know, really feel like? What does it really look like? But consumers should have, 
you know, should have those choices. I mean, I, I don't, well, not every mouse, it, it's not all tied to labor exactly. Not every mousetrap has to be the same, but I think that people should have a say in this. And I do think a lot of folks don't really understand sort of the medical industrial complex and how it's been built yeah. and yeah. what's generated, you know, and, and, uh, and even these gaps, I mean, primary care, I, I've often thought about, you know, I love the model of primary care clinicians really taking charge of, you know, whole health and actually taking risk and having the right support to do that because there's been this sort of natural caste system. You know, there's something, it's almost written like the 11th commandment that, you know, the PCP shall not make more than a couple hundred grand, but the orthopod shall never make less than 900 grand. Right. I mean, where, where does that happen? You know, in any other their parts of our life, right? So you know, a lot a lot of these things are unpeeling. Now, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? As they say, <laughs> digitization does a lot. Di you know, the digitization of things, you, you said something earlier about records. That's a great example. That record, that health record, my health record, your health record, that's been used as a weapon against us for a long time. You know, the Gabe knows, Gabe's from the, uh, the, the health IT world. You know, the whole reason we had to set up these health information exchanges because Hospital X sees me as an emergency patient and they didn't want to share that information with Hospital Y or Epic, you know, uh, doesn't want, uh, you know, uh, to be, doesn't really want to be in a world where they're interoperable and open with other technologies because that doesn't really help them even though that's what we expect again i always say to people look if i walk into best buy and i buy something for my computer my expectation is it's plug and play if it's advertised a certain way i walk out it's going to work think about our experience with healthcare you know we don't have any of those experiences so I, I, I don't know how to solve that problem uh explicitly other than i think transparency is important and, and i will say I am a fan of, I think that certain, uh, in particular, provider organizations that have incentives to drive whole health outcomes. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I've told people a lot of times, we, we, if we could figure out really who the best primary care physicians are and pay them a million bucks, it wouldn't do anything to the to the overall spend but it would drive it would make the system better right it would create it would uh, you know unravel the imbalance of supply mm -hmm. you know because there's a reason why people don't go into primary care you know and uh, and, right. and a whole bunch of other things so and i think too if we could resource them so not just pay them more but really you know build a system around resourcing them appropriately so that they can you know, handle a larger population and really direct care for the population appropriately, because the way that our system is set up now, primary care, they're supposed to be doing population health, but they really can't. Yeah. And so I think, you know, looking at that systemic barrier and trying to figure out, okay, what are the resources we could pad around them to keep them, you know, let's pay them more, definitely. Yeah. But let's also resource them better. Yeah. And, you know, your point earlier about, I mean, there are very few folks that have all of, you know, what I would say the broad data view, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, a payer has the broad data view, except that most of us are only with our particular payer, the length of time that we're with an employer or whatever. I mean, I, I think even an MA, the average length of MA is like seven or eight or nine years, which is great. But you think about it, who has a longitudinal view about me? You know, not my, not my primary care physician, for sure. Mm -hmm. Right. 
So if we really, you're, you're right, if we really want to resource them in a way to be very, very, very effective, what, what, what does that really look like? I, I do, I, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I do really like philosophically the model of having the right kinds of, of you know, like an ambulatory organization, a, a primary care based organization that can take risk that has, you know, that means they have to have the right financial wherewithal, they have to have the right leadership, you know, they have to have the right management team and so on and so forth. Um, uh, because there tends to be more alignment, like if at least with medical loss ratio, there's some accountability at the end of the day, like either people are, uh, you know, getting well, and we're doing it within the confines of a global budget, or they're not again, I'm not saying it's a perfect system. But it's certainly better than the incentives that we've lived through with fee for service. Now, I, I, I will say also, people are conflating, I, and I'm really very frustrated. I, I, the, the term value based care, I've gotten so sick and tired of hearing this term because it means nothing. It means nothing. It's gotten completely neutered. And if you think about it, like what other industry do we do we pr predicate the quality of the business on how they get paid? Businesses get paid a variety of different ways. You know, sometimes they get paid on a fee for service basis. Sometimes they get paid on a subscription basis. Sometimes they get paid on a contingent basis. There are a bunch of businesses in multiple industries that might get paid all of those ways, right? In terms of the mix. And it's almost like we've turned this into, hey, you're either, if you're getting fee for service, your old economy, if you're getting, you know, if you're fee for value, you're new. No, no, no. What about the outcomes? What about the results? You know, let's focus on, are we really driving improvement? So, but it's easier said than done. It's very it complex. Well, and, and to, to go back to the literature on evidence base, you know, the word evidence base is kind of a meaningless term as well, because you're looking at a scrubbed population, you know, a, a a hygienic population when you're looking at the literature and then you go into the real world and it doesn't always work out that way. And so we need to have some mechanism for supporting practices who are really going after, okay, if we apply this to this population, does it actually work? Does yes. it actually result in those improved outcomes? And, you know, how long does it take to get to those outcomes versus the study population maybe only looked at the population for three to six to nine months, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so being able to really translate the evidence into what actually works in the real world. And then going back to like, for, I, I always go to maternal health because that's my population and that's, you know, where I spend most of my time in the research. And, you know, when I visited Australia in 2017, I was looking at from a national perspective, they have a manual for all perinatal practitioners that says, these are the standards of screening for mm -hmm. perinatal moon anxiety disorders. This is how you treat these are the medications that are safe and appropriate for use during pregnancy and during nursing. And this is what the family would need in addition to what the OB does. So it's not just the OB. It's not just the provider who has to fix the broken system. It's this is how the system collaborates, coordinates together with community. So as a really just a, and that's where I go, you know, with sort of the, the national view, because CMS has this huge opportunity to do that and to show commercial insurers how to do that in a more coordinated, collaborated way and a transparent way so that the consumer can say, well, 
if I have a choice between my husband's plan, which does this, and my employer's plan, which does this, and they're about the same cost, I'd rather go in that direction. But instead, we get this IRS language about, you know, all of the tiers of medication prescriptions and what no one can understand it. And so you're just basically throwing a dart at what dartboard, you know, you can see based on all of the confusing language that it's made out to be for the consumer. Yeah, it's a good point. It's like it's like the Geico and the, the car insurance industry, you know, being able to put the the, the limits very well delineated uh, bodily injury versus this versus that right so that we can compare plans and apples to apples. Hey, Don, I wanted to go back to, to the right leadership. You said the right leadership. Paint me a picture of what the right leadership is for the new world order of uh, hospital at home and, and going into these new models. Yeah, I, you know what? I, I think it's got to be uh, very dynamic. There's a lot that we don't know. Um, I uh, I just, you know, saw something about predictions around care cost migration to the home, like, you know, several hundred mil- billion dollars that could migrate from institutional settings to home in just the next couple of years. And so then you think about, okay, are we really ready to support people in home and community because <laughs> that requires a bigger logistics lift and we we haven't really been great at logistics so i think it's i think it's supreme significant problem solving there's always going to be a premium placed on mission orientation i i don't think it's mission doesn't mean soft or second class or different it just means that people that are called to healthcare, you know they really have it's a little bit of a of a higher calling so i think that that continues i do think we need to have more what i would call you know hard science quant i don't mean science science but in in terms of business acumen more quantitative uh capabilities not not everybody has to be an expert but people that understand basic things you know the the number of folks that i talk to about you know uh variation that have have very rudimentary understanding of even you know foundational statistics concepts. They they don't really understand what what these things mean. So that's an important part of this. Without question, dynamic people leader. And I would say that you know I think leaders that win in the next generation are going to be very focused on on people. It used to be you know you'd read about you know, a whole bunch of quote unquote great leaders. That's always a question mark, but, you know, people would say I'm spending 40 or 50% of my time on people issues. You know, this is something that keeps me up at night. Like, am I spending enough time because everything's moving so fast on really, you know, that's cultivating people that's identifying talent, so on and so forth. You know, we, we, I think, uh, we have learned and you know i don't i'm not saying this is for everybody but i think dna alignment is important so a lot of times the leaders in the org you know you can devise screens and tests and a whole variety of other things to test the the um you, you know the the brain power the acumen right of of candidates but are you really validating that they are aligned with you, you know, culturally and philosophically? So I, I, I think that's a, a big, a big deal. And um, what's going to be required is a lot of, you know, seeing around corners and dealing with things that are really new and different. I, I really believe that because I think there's going to be, I used the term earlier, but a lot of cheese is going to be moved. And, you know, I think that, um, uh, uh, there's a lot of, you know, protectionism, there's some heads in holes types of things that are happening right now. And, um, 
so that that's important. Healthcare is always going to be, you know, regulatory and legislatively intensive. So there's always there needs to be that. And you know, how do you stay true to yourself as a leader? Yes, you have to you have to lobby, you have to deal with regulators, you have to advocate, you know, all of those things. But, you know, leaders try to get to the right answer, even if the right answer may not exactly feather their bed, you know, in that particular situation. So I think that's important. So I, I, I think there's, this is going to call for, for an upgrade. And, and the, you know, if you think about, just think about hospitals for a second. And again, there's always a couple of different sides to the coin, or there's two sides to the coin, I guess, right? But, but you know, 90% of the hospital beds are not for profit, right, in, the, in America. So there, there's, you know, what does that mean? Well, that means they have a voluntary board. Well, what does that mean? That means, does the board have the level of sophistication? It's not that they're not good people. Do they have the wherewithal to be a fiduciary to, to drive the kind of outcomes that, you know, those hospitals, we should expect of those hospitals in those places, right. right? And so, and that's across the board, you know, we do, as you know, you too, Gabe, you know, with, with safety net providers, I mean, they have, you know, the biggest hearts in the world, you wonder, are they, is there the right rigor in place to, to deliver on the right outcome? So the leadership thing is fraught with a lot of challenges. And at the end of the day, because of the human condition, I think that, that amps up the, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the requirement, the challenge, you know, all of the things that Kara talked about, it amps it up 50% more, right? Because we're yeah. dealing with people's lives. So um, I think, I think a leadership focus is really important. And I, and I think, I, I don't think we have enough of it right now. Yeah. And, and that's just been really the, the impetus for, for this program at CGI from the Masters of Healthcare Leadership is, is to take that next generation of leaders and not put them in a path. I, I, I hate the word path or, or you know, uh, critical paths or anything like that. At the same time, learn from what's in front of them and what has been in front of them to, to really understand the different modalities of leadership in our healthcare organization, not just hospitals, obviously it could be CDC, it could be a vendor side pay or whatever, right? right? But um, but learning from those people that are retiring from the baby boomer generation, from the post-World War II kind of hospital complex, um, you know, uh, supply chain and, and really learning the, the skills necessary to be that disruptor, to be that person. And I, I truly agree with you that we have a gap in healthcare leadership today mm-hmm. of the generation Xers, like, like myself and Kara, I can talk to you because we've talked about generation X for a while, mm-hmm. you know, of the Xers versus the boomers that are retiring. And I, and I see a humongous gap there. And then I look back to my kids' generation and how they think about the world. There's a gap there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a, uh, and, and, you know, Gartner had this term digital natives that I think is sort of stuck. But if you think about how, you know, our kids grow up, they, they, you know, their default is technology is digital, you know, it's become part of their workflow. I think, you know, I feel like I'm a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, adopter of technology, but it's not, it's not digitally native, you know, I grew up without cell phones and, you know, right around cables advent so i think differently about these things and and it's very difficult to those patterns are so different i really believe generationally on the care seeking side of this i i think we're going to see dramatic disruption or dislocations of traditional care patterns so you wonder like 
with, you know, we've got all of this hospital infrastructure and, you know, hospital is one of those things where when you need a hospital, it's nice to know you have a good hospital in your neighborhood. Okay. But, but other than that, you never really think about the hospital. Okay. And, and I remember somebody said to me once, you know, when the person comes around with hat in hand and asks for a donation for the hospital, like they used to do in the old days, are you really giving the hospital a donation? You're not really motivated till you need that place. Right. So how do we maintain the social safety net, right? How do we maintain the infrastructure that's needed? Um, but at the same time advance because, you know, where we are is, is, is not, you know, is not where, we, where we should be. The, the last thing that I'll say on this point and coming back to a number of the things that we said, I think that it's been historically, or we haven't figured out how to, to really identify outcomes or results, you know, whether it's care or otherwise. And, the system has defaulted to these process measures, right? So it's think about high tech, you know, it's like, you know, have I talked to my 50% of my patients about smoking cessation or guidelines or whatever that that's not, that doesn't pass muster for quality. That's a, that's a checklist, right? Okay. Right, (laughs) right, right, right. right. So, So, so we have to challenge ourselves. Hey, how do we define, how do we define results? And we ought to be asking the people that were, you know, caring for or serving or whatever. So exactly. Yep. Yeah. And that, and that's something again, just to, you know, kind of lean in back in the direction of the conversation around national health and CMS, you know, in, and, and I spend a lot of time with the international foundation of integrated care, which is why I'm, I'm, you know, kind of my heads in this literature. Um, there are, there's such a huge push to do what they call co-design with communities. So, you know, for, for at least the last 10 years that I've been involved and, and really head in this, you know, international literature base, you're really looking at if it's not co-design, it's not quality. And you can build, you know, for the, again, to go back to the evidence base, what is evidence based if it doesn't work for your population, you can't apply it. So if you, if you look to the community and you ask and you bring them to to the table from the design point all the way through the PDSA cycle or whatever quality improvement cycle you want to use it or apply. And they're, and they're telling you along the way, and they're part of the evaluation process too, then you know, it works, you know, you know, you know, it truly works. And so how can we in the United States get past the point of, you know, just designing something that from a business perspective works or, or works for shareholders. And again, really brings the, the quality element of the person to the table from the get-go. Yeah. That's what I want to see because yeah. I know that if I'm at the table, I'm and I'm more informed than the, than the normal consumer in this area because this is what I do for a living. But if I'm at the table, then I know I'm I'm able I have a voice in my in my care and I have a I have an option to participate in the improvement itself. I know it's going to be better with me there than without me there. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that at, at, at the same time. And I think Gabe opened up with this. I think that the the old Saul about bench to bedside, what's it take yeah. 17 years to get a best practice into application. So it scares me a little bit when, when we rely on processes like that to drive it, you know, improvement, because it's, you know, that's not anyway. So it's, a, it's, look, it's a, I think it's a great uh, discussion. And I think part of what you're, you're describing care is a, a little bit of a top down model, you know, uh, just because, you know, at the organizing level organizing uh you know bigger players and and using that that leverage which i i think is a you know great 
way to think about it. I'm, I'm a little bit more of a bottom-up guy. I still believe that it's very hard to organize what 315 million Americans want, you know, and, and, yeah. and plan for and try to figure out. And I think the answer is in the center somewhere, right? Obviously, you know, I th- or not obviously, but I think it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's some, some combination thereof. I, I, I what, one thing yeah, I, sorry, Don, go ahead. No, one thing I would say is, you know, I have come to the, like, I used to think, Hey, I want to, you know, geez, let's radically change this system. But I, I don't think you can really make change. Not that I'm going to be an incrementalist, but we are where we are. And I think we have to take stock of some things aren't going to change. You know, the, the employer sponsored thing, there's been a million opportunities to roll back the tax exemption and, you know, do this, that, and the other thing. And, and no one's really motivated to do that. So we're probably, we're dealing, we have to deal with that. Whether you think that's a positive or negative, I think that's something that we, you know, we're dealing with. The third rail that is Medicare and the social safety net is here forever. And it's going to expand to your point. I mean, I, I don't love that, but you know, it is, it is what it is. And, and uh, so mm-hmm. you have to be able to work in the, within the system, right? If you want to make change in the system, you know, it, you have to be able to work at the system. So. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, to your point about, you know, looking, looking to the digital native and, and really looking at what, you know, kids need versus what do, um, you know, what does my grandmother who's 93 and her best technology is her grandpad, which has been amazing, but it doesn't do healthcare. It doesn't do video conferencing with her doctor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how can we bring folks of all generations and ages to the table to say, you know, is there a way for us to really tailor the right solutions for you along the lifespan on a continually changing, you know, moving target? (laughs) Because, you know, technology just continues to push us in a direction of maybe more information and data available, but that doesn't, that information and data doesn't necessarily translate to wisdom. No. And it's very hard to process. I mean, I think there's no question we've got an information glut, you know, I don't, yeah, the information does not mean insights, you know, so that's a, mm-hmm. a problem and a challenge. And I think, you know, this is something what you said, it's always bugged me, like, why? It seems like everybody wants to be the same. So every hospital wants to have centers of excellence, like I, you know, are we going to see more specialization? Are we going to see more? Uh, you know, focused factory. We're going to see people go deeper in certain areas and try to to add value with very specific populations where mm-hmm. they really think they can add value. I mean, I think that's these these are some of the open questions. So, thank you so much for your for your insights. Every time I I hear you, I I take notes because um, I I feel like you know every time um, we get into these types of conversations, it, it could feel like you know, a tsunami is coming, or at least to me, I, I see the water receding. I'm originally from Chile, so I know what tsunami is. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I feel like this tsunami of different uh, modalities of care, generational leadership, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and so one of, one of the impetus for building this program was to really leave behind a, a, a process of acquiring this knowledge, this insight that you're talking about, Mm-hmm. So that um, so that we don't keep repeating the same problems over and over, and mm-hmm. have a sustainable model. And and I truly believe that is our generation that's going to solve this equation of total cost of care, of outcomes based, um, y- you know, service lines, etc. Uh, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I I, I do believe that. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm in the middle. Yeah. Of my I still got halfway through and hopefully I'll make it, you know, uh, till a hundred, like my grandfather. Oh, that's uh, wonderful. <laughs> but I, I hope so too. Yeah. So in all that, uh, good health. Thank you so much, Don. You thank are you guys. Amazing. Uh, Kara, thank you so much really for your a insights as well. Thank you, Kara. And yeah, you, uh, it's great talking to you. Really wonderful. Thank you guys. Have a great day and uh, look forward to the next time. Take care. Thanks, Don. Thank you, Bye Don. Now. Have a good Bye one. Now. Bye-bye.